You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Penny McAllister. Callister was the eldest daughter of Norma and Desmond Squire, born in 1966. Her father was a teacher, but ended up joining the military and teaching the children of other people who were also serving in the British Armed Forces. She grew up in Gibraltar and Germany. Penny was taught by her father for most of her childhood, and she did well at school and was bright. She enjoyed music and theatre, and took part in a number of stage productions held at her school in Germany, which her father was principal of. She was bright and bubbly, good-looking, and tall. She met Duncan McAllister when she was 16, at the bar in the officer's mess at Lipstadt. He was born in June 1961. His father was a captain in the Royal Armed Service Corps. He attended boarding school in the UK. After completing O-levels there, he went on to study at Welbeck College in order to join the Technical Corps, which he did. He gained a commission and did signals training before being stationed in Germany. Duncan met Penny six months after that posting and just after calling off his engagement to a girl he'd been with for some time. For some reason, flustered by the pretty young girl, Duncan had been rude to her, but he couldn't get her out of his head and so a number of months later he called to her home, and the two started going out at that point. They fell in love quickly. After Duncan was posted back to England in September of 1983, he proposed, with the young couple unable to spend any more time apart. Penny and Duncan married in August of 1984 when Penny was 18 and Duncan was 23. They moved together to Wiltshire, where Duncan attended the Royal Military College of Sciences. The plan was for Penny to attend the nearby Bristol University to complete her own degree, but that didn't work out. Their other plans for the early years of their marriage went off without a hitch, though. They had intended that they spend as much time together as possible, travel and have fun. They went on holidays together and both learned to dive. When Duncan would be sent off to the Alps or Belize, Penny would go along too, with the couple scraping together the money for her airfare. Their life was about spending time together and having fun experiences. Eventually, though, Duncan received a posting to Northern Ireland. Duncan had always wanted to work in an active theatre posting, and Penny was happy to accompany him, despite the fact that most wives of army officers tended to remain in England due to the danger posed by paramilitary groups in the north at that time. They moved to Armagh, along with Penny's two Gordon Setter dogs, and were allocated a four-bedroom house with a nice garden. They settled into life there, making friends and enjoying the social life provided by the officers' mess in Armagh. Then, in February of 1990, Duncan and Penny decided to set up an army diving club. There wasn't one in Armagh at the time, and both of them were happy to expand their hobby. 
Penny looked after the administration of the club, doing very little diving, as she didn't enjoy being in the cold water with poor visibility that was available on the northern Irish coast. Duncan gave lectures on diving and led trips to teach diving basics. A number of members of the local Ulster Defence Regiment, the UDR, joined up to learn about diving. That included a young woman by the name of Susan Christie, and no one could have predicted the effect that this petite soldier would have on the McAllisters' lives. Susan Christie was born in 1968, the daughter of a non-commissioned officer in the Ulster Defence Regiment. Her father, Bob Christie, had served in both England and Germany before resettling in his native Northern Ireland. Susan and Bob were incredibly close, and he doted on her. When Susan became a teen, she would proudly and rightly declare that she had her father wrapped around her little finger. Susan was a driven young woman, and from an early age, planned to follow her father's footsteps into the military. After sitting her O-levels, she took a secretarial course, and then just before her 21st birthday, she took up a full-time position in the UDR, having worked there part-time for a while. She excelled and was the top of her class there. But along with her perfectionism when it came to her work was a desire to mark herself out as different and a need for attention, for all eyes to be on her. She became an outrageous flirt and would say some quite forward things to the men around her, though she never walked the walk per se. More tellingly, if she found that she wasn't in fact the centre of attention, she would basically throw a strop and sulk to bring the spotlight back to herself. The same happened at the diving club, but this time Susan's attention focused on Duncan McAllister, and that attention was actually returned. After a few weeks of building sexual tension, Duncan began an affair with Susan. He would later say that when it had started, he said that this was just to be a physical relationship, a sort of fling, and that Susan had agreed. But Duncan McAllister was also the man who had taken her virginity. Things escalated quickly. They began meeting often, usually in the back of a car. Duncan said that he had been happy in his marriage with Penny. They had fun, they were in a good place, and he loved her deeply. But there had just been something about Susan which had attracted him, and his desire to sleep with her overrode his rational thought. They began to get closer, and soon things were more than just physical, and because Duncan was her first, he felt a certain responsibility towards Susan. Meanwhile, Penny had suspicions of what was going on. She noticed the way that Susan acted towards her husband, and she noticed that Duncan was returning the extra attention too. Penny had no proof that anything was going on, but held a genuine suspicion and resolved to try and ignore the situation, thinking whatever it was would eventually fizzle out and her relationship with her husband which had been good up until that point, would return to normal. But Susan's behaviour around Duncan, particularly in the diving circle, became a bit unpredictable. Susan was jealous. She treated Penny horribly. She was rude and would ignore Penny if she so much as said hello. Susan also did her best to try and make Duncan jealous. The diving club would head to the pub, and when she wasn't sitting next to Duncan, flirting and laughing too loudly at his jokes, she'd flirt with the other soldiers around. Duncan described her behaviour as leading them on, and if any of them would try for a kiss or anything more than talk, 
Susan would run back to Duncan crying, saying she was being harassed. She began to get a reputation for throwing accusations around. She also began to complain of illness when she felt that she wasn't getting the attention she wanted and was treated in hospital a few times. In September of 1990, there was a more serious incident. Duncan and Susan dove together with the club at the wreck of the SS Chiripo, which sank off the Antrim coast in 1917. It was a deeper dive than was usual at the club, with the ship sitting on the seafloor 30 metres below. Duncan was a cautious leader, and he had all of the club members stop mid-ascent and sit for two minutes before coming up to the air, to avoid the tiny chance there was that anyone would suffer with the bends. After everyone was back up and on the shore, he left them with a further warning that if anyone was to feel unwell over the night, they were to contact him or another dive supervisor. They all assured him that they were fine, though. The next morning, however, Duncan received a call that Susan was unwell. She had pains in her joints, indicative of suffering from the bends. Duncan decided to take her for treatment by a doctor experienced in the condition, and although Susan was able to get to Duncan and then into the hospital under her own steam, as Duncan left her in the waiting room while he went to fetch the doctor, Susan fell to the ground and had to be attended by a nurse. When the doctor examined Susan, he agreed that her symptoms did sound consistent with having surfaced too quickly at her last dive, though it was strange that Duncan who had been her diving partner during that outing, had no symptoms at all. If Susan had come up too quickly, then McAllister should have had the same experience as her and would likely also be sick. But nevertheless, the doctor decided that Susan should receive treatment. She did two rounds in a recompression chamber, but still complained of feeling unwell. The doctor was concerned because she was still saying she felt the symptoms, but then Susan informed both the doctor and Duncan that her shoulder, which was the most painful, had been injured a week before during a training course and perhaps the pain she was experiencing was from that. At this point, her worry focused instead on whether she would be able to attend a dive at Ascension Island in the middle of the Southern Atlantic Ocean, which was scheduled to take place the next month. The doctor had told her that, given she had been treated for the bends, it was policy to wait 30 days before diving again after treatment for it. Both the doctor and Duncan were furious that it seemed that their time had been wasted by what was most probably a false alarm. And they weren't the only ones. Penny had been left at her home for hours while Duncan attended to the woman she suspected he was having an affair with. This, to her, was just the latest in a long line of emergencies where Susan had called on Duncan for help and Penny was so fed up she actually called her mother. Penny didn't tell her mother in so many words that Duncan was cheating on her, but Norma knew what it was like to live on an army base, having done the same for most of her adult life, and she could read between the lines. She worried that Penny's good nature and her deep love for Duncan would ultimately hurt her. This was only the second time Penny had spoken of her concerns. Over the previous summer, she'd travelled to Germany to visit a friend and had let her in on the concerns about Duncan and his possible relationship with the young UDR soldier. She also confided to this friend 
that she had kept a pregnancy and a miscarriage from Duncan, such was her worry over the state of their relationship. That weekend, while Penny was off confiding in her closest friend in Germany, Duncan had Susan over to their house. It was the first time they had been in a bed together, and the first time they'd stayed the night together. And as things grew more serious, Susan would profess her love to Duncan. But eventually she began to ask why he wouldn't return the sentiment. He brushed things off and soothed Susan's concerns, but Duncan would later tell author Nicholas Davies that he had felt unable to express love back to Susan as he felt it was too much of a betrayal of his wife. Duncan told himself that although he cared for Susan and he was more emotionally attached than he had intended, this was something altogether different from his marriage. In October of 1990, the trip to Ascension Island went ahead. Susan was briefly delighted to hear that there had been a problem with arrangements made for Penny's flights to the island, but Duncan managed to sort it and Susan's elation at the prospect was quickly dashed and turned into what would turn out to be the first of many sulks over the next ten days. At the beginning of the trip, Susan was hostile to Penny, who was just trying to make the trip go smoothly taking care of equipment and cooking for the group. Susan refused to eat Penny's food, nor did she help out with the prep required for the dives. Meanwhile, Duncan was splitting his attention between the two women. Despite being annoyed by Susan's behaviour, he still managed to slip away with her a few times throughout the trip. The thing that concerned him most was, after he had given out to Susan for acting so badly towards Penny, the two women began spending time together. They'd sit and have drinks and private-looking chats together, and Duncan had no idea what they were talking about. After the trip, Duncan decided that he would have to end his relationship with Susan. It was clear that she was by this stage madly in love with him, and though he had feelings for her too, he knew that the relationship was going nowhere, and he thought it time to end things not only for Susan's sake, but for the sake of his marriage, and because engaging in this sort of relationship also put his career at risk. But Susan was having none of it. She'd cried throughout their conversation about breaking it off, and then totally ignored it. On the 2nd of November, Susan rang Duncan and informed him that she thought she was pregnant. She was distraught, and Duncan was panicked. He didn't know how this could have happened, but then Susan said that she'd been sick a few times during their trip to Ascension Island, and this must have interfered with her birth control. Susan hadn't told Duncan about her illness because she hadn't wanted to be stopped from diving. When they met to discuss what they should do, Duncan laid out for Susan what he had come up with in order to deal with their predicament, but insisted that he would leave the decision up to her, and he would support her whatever that was. The first was that she could get an abortion. The second was that she could have the child but not name Duncan as the father. Duncan could keep his job and support the child financially from afar. The third was that Susan could have the child and name Duncan as the father but he would lose his job and there would be no financial security. In each case, Duncan said he wouldn't leave Penny. Susan wept. She didn't want an abortion, she said, but eventually decided for the sake of her own career that it was the best thing to do. 
If she had the baby, she'd have to quit the UDR, and she didn't want to do that. She later told Duncan that she'd seen a doctor and had the pregnancy confirmed, but had been given the unusual advice that she needed to wait some time before arrangements could be made for an abortion, made even stranger by the fact that abortion has been illegal in Northern Ireland until this year. But a month later, none of that mattered. On the 5th of December 1990, Susan rang Duncan and told him through tears that she had had a miscarriage, though she never had a checkup at the hospital, nor did she take any time away from work for recovery. They met regularly for the next week while Duncan listened to Susan talk about what had happened and tried to help her process the ordeal that she had been through. But then Duncan received an angry call from Susan. She had met up with Penny for lunch again, and when Susan informed her she'd had a miscarriage, Penny commiserated with her own story of pregnancy loss. Susan was furious that Duncan hadn't told her about Penny's miscarriage, but he hadn't known. He hadn't even known his wife had been pregnant, and he was devastated to think that Penny had felt she couldn't tell him about it. And because of how he found out, and who he'd been told by, Duncan felt he couldn't then ask Penny about it. Duncan once more resolved to end things with Susan. And then she got the news that her ambition to become an officer was progressing. She would be taking a three-month course in England in the spring of 1991. This would be the perfect time to end things, Duncan realised. He continued to speak to Susan and even went to her home every so often. But then news came that Duncan was being considered for a posting in Germany. He decided to accept it. And that seemed to confirm that there would be an end to his relationship with Susan. She would go off to England, and by the time she returned, Duncan and Penny would have moved. Duncan and Susan's relationship continued much the same, however. They met up secretly, continued diving together, and calling each other on the phone. Penny did begin to receive hang-up calls, and Susan once rang the McAllister house, inviting both Penny and Duncan to see a film with her and another member of the dive club. When the McAllisters declined, Susan turned up at the house, trying to convince Duncan to come with her, and then threw a fish when he wouldn't go. The weekend before Susan was to head to England for her course, Penny went to Dublin with some other army wives. Susan and Duncan would spend the weekend together. It was the last one that they would have. They went diving and went on walks and slept with each other. Susan was upset that things were finally coming to an end, but told Duncan she was happy that they would remain friends. After the weekend was over and Penny returned, Duncan was surprised to still receive a call from Susan. He'd thought that the weekend together had clearly signalled the end of their affair. It had been a long goodbye to one another, but Susan didn't seem to have the same understanding. She continued to call Duncan at work and even made plans to meet Penny once more for a walk, followed by lunch. On Tuesday the 26th of March, Duncan got another call from Susan, where she posed a hypothetical to him. She asked him what would have happened in their relationship if Duncan hadn't been married. After protesting that thinking like that was hurtful and pointless, Duncan laid out the other difficulties that they would have faced. She was a soldier and he was an officer and their relationship wasn't allowed in the army. Even if she had got her commission, she was in the UDR and would have been stuck in Northern Ireland 
while Duncan would never be stationed there long term. Susan was upset, but grudgingly agreed with him and then ended the call. The following day, on the 27th of March, Duncan went to work, with Penny driving him there as she had to do a drop for her own work at an army-run shop, and it was the day she'd planned on meeting Susan to walk the dogs and have lunch. But she was also expecting a visit from her parents that evening and was busy preparing for their arrival at 6pm. Penny told Duncan she wasn't looking forward to her lunch date with Susan. It had been rescheduled twice already and she was busy enough, but she decided to go anyway. A few hours into his workday, Duncan got a call from Susan. She asked if he knew where Penny was. She tried ringing the house, but there was no answer, and Susan said she'd forgotten if they'd decided to meet at eleven or half past. Duncan, a bit exasperated, said Penny had errands to run and suggested that Susan turn up at eleven and just wait if she'd got the time wrong. Susan agreed. Duncan thought no more of it and continued his work, heading out of the office for a fitness test, which was a three-mile run that afternoon. But when he got back to his building, he was approached by his commanding officer and told that there was some bad news. Duncan thought he'd lost his posting to Germany, and so when his commanding officer broke the news that Penny had been killed, he couldn't absorb the information at first. He was devastated. He was told that Penny had been attacked while she was out walking the dogs at Drumkira Forest. Duncan was told then that Penny had been walking with another woman who had also been attacked, injured and brought to the hospital. Duncan knew that the woman must be Susan, but his very next concern was the fact that Penny's parents would soon be arriving at the airport expecting to see their daughter waiting for them. He would have to go and break the news to them, and he would have to ring his parents too. Police had secured the area around the woods where Susan Christie had been discovered in a distressed state by a family who was having a picnic nearby. She had appeared from the woods crying and unable to stand properly. Her hands were covered in blood, her clothes were ripped, she had scratches on her face, and there was a stab wound to her upper thigh. The woman rushed towards her and yelled for her husband to go call for police while Susan begged for someone to go find Penny. Beyond that, Susan wasn't making much sense. A doctor arrived and began treating Susan while police went into the woods and followed the trail to find Penny. She was lying on the forest floor, also covered in blood. Her throat had been cut and she had bled out there. Susan was treated for her scratches and the stab wound in hospital and then sent home to try and recover from the shock. That night, Duncan rang her to see how she was and to find out what had happened. All she could do was apologise to him for his wife's death, saying she'd tried to help but couldn't. He agreed that he'd come to see her after he went to view Penny in the Chapel of Rest. Susan said she wanted to go with him, to be there to support him and to pay her own respects. She was rather insistent, but Duncan refused, saying that this was something he had to do on his own. Duncan said he would come by soon. He did, the following day, and their conversation began again with Susan tearfully apologising for not being able to save Penny. Duncan reassured her that she'd done everything she could and that she'd been so brave. 
Then Susan told him what had happened. The two women had met. Susan's dog was under the weather, so she hadn't brought him. But they decided to do the walk anyway for the sake of Penny's two dogs. They made one loop around the forest and decided to do another because it was a lovely, warm day. At one point, Susan stopped to tie her shoelace and Penny went on ahead with the dogs. Just then, Susan heard one of them begin to bark madly and when she continued down the path, she saw a man standing over Penny who was lying on the ground. First, she thought Penny must have fallen and the man was trying to help her but then she saw that Penny was covered in blood and the man had a knife. It was then that he attacked her, stabbing her, pulling her to the ground, trying to pull her clothes off. Susan kneed him in the groin and managed to get away. She said her attacker was of average height, around 5'9". He had brown hair and blue eyes and was wearing a green jacket, jeans and white runners. When she got out from under him, she ran to Penny to try and stop the bleeding from her neck but it was no use. Then she noticed the man hadn't left, and so she ran all the way back to the car park. The following morning, police called to Susan Christie's home, asking for her to accompany them back to the location of the attack. They had suspicions that Susan was not telling them the full truth, and of course, they were right. she told them nothing of her affair with Duncan, nor had he. Duncan told Susan at their meeting the previous day that the affair was private and none of the police's business. He didn't want something so scandalous to mar Penny's funeral. Susan agreed. Neither would say anything, though it was also agreed that if the police discovered the relationship on their own, neither would lie. So police brought Susan back out to Drumkira Forest that morning and then back to the station. She stayed there through the rest of the day. When she was finally told to go home, she rang Duncan. Susan was once again distraught. She complained that one police officer in particular had been very unsympathetic and told Duncan that she'd been questioned over and over again about exactly what had happened. Duncan explained to her that this was how the police worked. They gathered as much information as possible that way but Susan was convinced that she'd been mistreated and that the police had it out for her when she was in fact a victim in all of this. Duncan asked if she'd seen any of the news reports about Penny's murder that day, and Susan said she hadn't. He said police were appealing for information about the man she had described and also a white car police believed that the man had been driving. Susan was calmed slightly when she realised that this meant someone else had seen the man in the forest too. Susan also told Duncan that police had informed her that they were going to speak to a friend of hers that knew she was having an affair with a married officer. Both were worried about that. Duncan was concerned not only over how it might affect his friends and family who were already in mourning, but because he would certainly lose his job if it was discovered. But after thinking on it overnight, Duncan decided that he should tell the police what had been going on He was worried that keeping this secret from them would end up wasting police time if they uncovered that aspect of Penny and Duncan's lives and devoted time and resources into investigating it. So Duncan set up a meeting at Ballynahinch Police Station. Duncan was so nervous telling police that he could barely get the words out, but he explained what had happened, why he hadn't been honest from the beginning, and why he'd had a change of heart. 
He gave details of the affair, when it had started, dates, locations, anything that he could remember. There were very few questions from the detective after that. He asked Duncan if he'd ever been to Drumkira Forest, and was he aware that Susan had been out there the weekend before. The answer to both of those was no, although Duncan had known that Susan had been out walking in a wooded area somewhere recently. When he was done talking, he asked if the police would be able to keep this new information from the army, but he was told that that might not be possible. Duncan was also told that he was required to return to Northern Ireland after Penny's funeral in Ashton Keys, and that under no circumstances would he be allowed to speak to Susan. Duncan travelled to England to prepare for Penny's funeral, and was collected from the airfield by his father. Eventually, Duncan confessed the affair to him. It was at this point it struck Duncan that if police suspected Susan might be involved, then they may also suspect him, too. His father had asked him outright. The night before Penny's funeral, Duncan got word that Susan Christie was to be charged in relation to Penny's killing. He had to come clean, as the news would surely hit the papers soon, and so he placed a difficult call to Penny's parents, who remained gracious throughout and had Duncan sit next to them at their daughter's funeral service the following morning. Meanwhile, Susan continued to be questioned by police. She had stuck to her story about the strange man as the attacker, repeating it over and over, though she was unable to flesh out the details of the actual attack. Until, that is, she was informed that Duncan had confessed to police about their affair. Initially, Susan didn't believe it, but then she began a campaign of deflection and changed her story to say only that she couldn't remember what had happened. Her mind had gone blank while they were on the walk and when she came to again, Penny had been on the ground, bleeding to death. Officers who'd been involved in the interview noted that Susan had acted strangely throughout. She seemed to like the attention of the police during her interviews. She ate everything put in front of her with gusto and she tried to befriend the female officer that was assigned to the case. It wasn't the sort of behaviour typical of someone who had witnessed a brutal murder, or was then implicated in it. When Duncan returned to Northern Ireland, he was once again brought to the police station for questioning. He was grilled about his relationship with Susan and with Penny. He was asked if he and Penny had an open marriage, and whether Penny had intentionally failed to come to Susan's aid during a dive off the Antrim coast earlier in the year and whether he had insisted Susan have an abortion. Susan had told police that Penny had viciously taunted Susan about being a poor diver while they were out on their walk that day, that Susan had some sort of blackout or flashback to fearing for her life on her last dive with Penny, and when she came out of it, Penny was lying dead on the forest walk. But police went on to tell Duncan that they still didn't think that Susan was giving them a full story and that perhaps she was covering for her lover's involvement in the death of his wife. After all, why had Duncan conspired with Susan to keep the affair quiet? And why had he spent two days following his wife's murder with his supposed ex-mistress? But Duncan flatly denied it. A statement was prepared off that interview and then Duncan McAllister, was free to go. 
Susan was held in custody in Magaberry Remand Centre in Lisburn, where she quickly adjusted to prison life. She kept in contact with some of her friends at the UDR, and her father visited her regularly, but she never indicated to anyone that she regretted what had happened. On June 1st, 1992, Susan Christie appeared at Downpatrick Crown Court and pleaded not guilty to murder, but guilty to manslaughter. The Crown, however, argued in their opening statement that if ever there was a case of premeditated murder, this was it. Christie had lured her lover's wife to a secluded spot and then brutally murdered her. Then she tried to cover up the crime by injuring herself and making up a story about being attacked by a man. A senior scientist from the Northern Ireland Forensic Science Laboratory, Joseph Corr, described how he had visited the crime scene shortly after Penny's death. Mr Corr told the jury that he believed Penny had been attacked from behind, and that she'd been grabbed by her coat and hair on the left side because one of her earrings had been pulled off and its spring was broken. Her neck had been slashed in one swift movement, and Mrs. McAllister had lost consciousness almost immediately. While on scene, Mr. Corr was also given a knife that had been found by police 260 yards away from her body. It was a boning knife which had been sharpened closely. It was his opinion that this was the knife used in the attack. He also described clothing taken from Susan Christie. A blue jacket was found to have blood on its cuff which matched Penny McAllister's blood type, but not Susan Christie's. The GP who examined Susan Christie was also called to give evidence. He described finding her curled up on the floor of a house near to the car park at the forest. He had patched up the small stab wound on her leg and a scratch across her stomach. Her underwear was slightly ripped and blood-stained and when Susan removed her gloves that she'd been wearing on the rather mild day, her hands were covered in blood, but there were no scratches or marks on them. When the doctor followed up with Susan a few days later, he formed the opinion that her wounds had been self-inflicted. The court then heard from the pathologist who had examined Penny's body, and he described the horrific wounds that had been inflicted on her and agreed that she would have lost consciousness quickly, though death had likely not occurred for a few minutes. As he described the enormous and catastrophic wound to Penny's neck, the court could hear Susan Christie sobbing and struggling to catch her breath. A doctor had to be called and it was determined that Susan Christie was not medically fit to continue as she could not calm herself so the court had to be adjourned for the rest of the day. When proceedings resumed, Captain Duncan McAllister was called to the stand. He gave details of his marriage and outlined how his affair with Susan Christie had begun. He was brought through all the details he could remember, where they met and how often, and what his intentions had been when the affair began. On the stand, Duncan came off as cold. He said he had made it clear from the beginning to Susan that their relationship would not last, that he intended to remain in his marriage. He said he thought that Susan understood this, even after she'd told him that she loved him. Christie's defence counsel took advantage of how McAllister was coming off on the stand. 
He was accused of cruelly ignoring the emotional impact the affair was having on Susan Christie in order to keep it going, to satisfy his own sexual desires. He had acted heartlessly towards her, telling her he loved her too, only sometimes qualifying that with how it was a different love than what he felt towards his wife. He had led her on, and it was put to McAllister that the weekend before Penny's death, rather than being accepting of the end of their affair, Susan had in fact spent the weekend distraught and crying. Again, while the intimate details of their affair and the events in the course of their relationship were explained dispassionately by her lover, Susan Christie sat in the dock weeping. The following day, the next witness was called, Susan Christie herself. She would be before the court for three days to explain her version of their relationship. Susan said that she had hoped Duncan would eventually leave his wife for her, though she hadn't set out for that. She admitted that she liked to be the centre of attention, but denied that she had feigned illness and injury to ensure that she remained the centre of attention. Susan was asked about her pregnancy, and she denied having faked it and the subsequent miscarriage, and said that Duncan had told her outright that he wanted her to have an abortion. He'd said that if she insisted on having the baby, he'd deny that he was the father and would have nothing more to do with her. Susan said she'd wanted the baby, but then she'd lost it. Afterwards, Duncan never wanted to talk about it, she said. He would change the subject or tell her she needed to move on or chastise her for being emotional about it, saying that if she really wanted to get a commission and be an officer, then she had to stop that kind of display. Susan said that she and Penny had actually gotten to know each other a bit while they were all diving on Ascension Island. They were the only two women on the expedition. When questioned closely about her interactions with Penny, she admitted that there were times she was jealous of Duncan's wife and said Duncan had told her that Penny sometimes felt the same. Susan also alleged that Penny had confronted Duncan about the affair that she had suspected, but insisted that Penny had never said anything to Susan about it. When it came to the actual events of the 27th of March 1991, Susan said that she had tried to cancel the walk that the two were to go on. She'd woken up not feeling well, but Penny had left by the time she rang, and so they met at half eleven and drove in convoy to Drumkira Forest. Penny had never been there before. But Susan said she couldn't recall the attack. She insisted that she had a total memory loss of everything from the point when Penny continued walking on ahead to the moment she realised Penny was lying on the ground, bleeding out. Nor did Susan recall having purchased the boning knife, sharpening it or bringing it with her that day to the walk. She admitted that at first she had told the police a story about a man and insisted that, at that time, she had thought that this was true. But later, when police told her that this couldn't be, she came to acknowledge that it must have been her who had killed Penny. She tried to remember, but couldn't. Susan had spoken in a near whisper throughout her time on the stand, and according to author Nicholas Davies, the only time her voice became strong was when she was talking about good times that she'd had with Duncan and the love that she thought that they'd shared. She had loved him so much that she had stayed with Duncan despite the fact that he continuously hurt her. A consultant psychiatrist, Dr. Brown, had been engaged by the defence to conduct an assessment of Susan. 
her defense rested on his findings, that Susan had suffered from two defects of mind at the time of the killing, major depressive disorder, which could often be accompanied by bouts of legitimate amnesia, and an acute reaction to stress. The argument was that the circumstances Susan found herself in, due to her relationship with Duncan McAllister, had led her to temporarily lose control of herself, her sense of reason, resulting in Penny McAllister's killing. But the final witness to be heard was another consultant psychiatrist, Dr Norris, who had met with Susan Christie a number of times over the previous year while she was in prison awaiting trial. Christie had told him much of what she'd said on the stand in their meetings, and he'd also carried out a number of assessments of her mental state. Dr Norris found that in general Susan's reactions to the situation she'd been faced with were quite normal, and that likely she had, at the time of the killing, suffered from only a mild depressive illness, not something akin to a defect or disease of the mind. Dr Norris went on to further say that it was possible Susan had experienced what he described as conflibation, that is, where someone fills in the gaps in their memory, but he went on to say that he felt it unlikely that this could be the case in relation to Susan's lack of memories relating to the knife used in the killing. It was Dr Norris's professional opinion that Susan Christie was in fact making up the notion that she couldn't remember what had happened to Penny. After a break for the weekend, Lord Justice Kelly gave his summation of the evidence and his instructions to the jury. He said, quote, The ultimate question is, is it more likely than not that Susan Christie was suffering from mental abnormality at the time she planned, premeditated and executed the act of killing? That is what this case is about. Nothing more than that. End quote. After four hours of deliberation and being instructed that a majority decision would be accepted, the eight men and four women of the jury returned with their verdict. Susan Christie was found guilty on the manslaughter charge and was cleared of the murder of Penny McAllister. All that was left was for Lord Justice Kelly to hand down a sentence. Penny's parents sat in the courtroom for the first time since the nine-day trial began. They had decided not to be present for the majority of the evidence because they did not want to hear the awful details of their beloved daughter's death, but they were present for the verdict and sentencing and waited patiently to hear the extent to which Susan Christie would be punished for her crime. Lord Justice Kelly outlined the impact of Penny's killing on family and friends and the seriousness of the crime he was now to determine an appropriate sentence for. But, he said, he had to take into account the personal circumstances of Susan Christie. She was a young woman who had never been in trouble before and had never been in a physical relationship before. Judge Kelly made it clear that the fact of her affair with Duncan McAllister had led to the circumstances that ended in the killing, and he did not believe that Christie was at risk of committing any other crime in the future. In the end, Susan Christie was sentenced to five years for slitting Penny McAllister's throat. Penny's mother cried out in grief and shock as the sentence was announced. Susan made no reaction to the news. But the public outcry about the leniency of Susan Christie's sentence was nearly immediate. Even if Susan Christie had been the naive victim of a deceptive and uncaring older man, she had still brutally murdered Penny McAllister, someone who was totally blameless 
and only 24 years old herself. And so the case was referred to the Attorney General's office, who referred it to the Court of Appeal to consider whether the sentence had been appropriate. In November of 1992, the case came before the three-judge panel. The facts of the case were reviewed in detail, and the conclusion was that, despite the evidence given by psychiatrists that Susan Christie suffered from a mental disorder at the time of the killing, there was also evidence that she bore considerable residual mental responsibility for her actions. Susan Christie had not sought any treatment for her depression or anxiety. She had continued to report for duties with the UDR and never took time off due to her suffering with mental ill health. On top of all that, the evidence showed that she had taken deliberate steps in planning the attack in which Penny McAllister was killed and attempted to cover up the true circumstances of Penny's death for a number of days afterwards. There was evidence that Christie had known the nature of the act she had committed and knew that it was morally wrong at the time. Her sentence was increased to nine years' imprisonment. Susan Christie was released from jail in December of 1995 after serving just short of five years for the killing of Penny McAllister. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe and give a five-star rating, or honestly, just tell a friend. That really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Karen Kelly, Bartholomew Blanchfield, Danielle Ellison, Kate Hurst, Sirka Coyle, Blue Murder Mammy, and Annalisa Berger. There are bonus episodes as well as ad-free episodes and mens rea goodies on offer, so please do check it out at patreon.com forward slash mens Also, did you know that you can get mens rea merch? Head to shop.spreadshirt.ie forward slash mens to see the logo slapped on t-shirts, hoodies, and mugs. The link is also in the show notes, and don't forget to show off your swag on social media and tag the show. Thanks also to our sponsors this week. Head over to noom.com forward slash mens to start your free trial, and check out ritual.com forward slash mens for 10% off your first three months of Ritual Essential for Women. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so do check them out. Our theme music is Quinn's Song That Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. The main source this week was the book by Nicholas Davies, A Deadly Kind of Love. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time. Don't do anything I wouldn't do.